Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Tonight on The Readout. Last month, we learned about a justice who for years has accepted lavish trips and real estate purchases worth hundreds of thousands of dollars from a billionaire with interest before the court. That justice failed to disclose these gifts. How low can the court go? How low indeed? The Senate Judiciary Committee holds a hearing on the mounting scandals involving Supreme Court justices. Committee member Sheldon Whitehouse joins me in a moment. Also tonight, it felt like Trump had 40 zillion hands. That was testimony today from Jessica Leeds, who claims she was molested by Donald Trump on a flight. She joins me tonight. Plus, some of your favorite TV shows are going dark as Hollywood writers go on strike. Tonight, a look at the important issues that led to the walkout. And we begin tonight with the United States Supreme Court, the nine individuals with lifetime appointments to the highest law-giving body in the nation who have the power to determine whether you can or cannot make decisions about your own body or whether you can or cannot legally marry your partner. The nine individuals whose literal job it is to make rules that every single American must abide by. Those same people have decided, apparently, that they don't need any rules for themselves. Earlier today, Senate Democrats at a Judiciary Committee hearing made the case for Supreme Court ethics reform, calling for a code of conduct that justices must follow, which is basically just the bare minimum. Committee chair, committee chair and Senator Dick Durbin even pointed out that right now, ethical standards for Supreme Court justices are actually lower than they are for local city council members. Ethics cannot simply be left to the discretion of the nation's highest court. The court should have a code of conduct with clear and enforceable rules so both justices and the American people know when conduct crosses the line. The highest court in the land should not have the lowest ethical standards. That reality is driving a crisis in public confidence in the Supreme Court. The status quo must change. Not a single Supreme Court justice was in attendance, by the way. Chief Justice John Roberts snubbed the invite from Senator Durbin last week, offering instead a statement signed by all the justices in which they reaffirm and restate foundational ethics principles and practices to which they abide. Seriously. But let's just take a look at where those principles and practices have got us thus far, shall we? ProPublica revealed that Justice Clarence Thomas has failed to disclose luxury trips and private jet travel over the course of two decades, gifted to him by wealthy Republican donor and Nazi paraphernalia collector Harlan Crow. He also conveniently failed to disclose that Crow even bought Thomas's mother a house. There's also Justice Neil Gorsuch, according to Politico. Nine days after joining the bench, Gorsuch sold a property that he owned to the head of a major law firm that would go on to be involved in 22 cases before the high court. And then you have Chief Justice John Roberts. Insiders reporting that Roberts' wife made over $10 million working as a recruiter for law firms who regularly appeared before the court. None of this was previously disclosed. 
And what the Senate is proposing in response to these efforts isn't some wild, far-reaching concept. It's actually pretty standard practice. Independent Senator Angus King and Republican Lisa Murkowski introduced legislation last week that would force the court to create a binding code of conduct and appoint an ethics officer to oversee it. While a separate bill proposed by Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse would require the justices to adopt and follow an ethics code, impose standards for disclosing travel and gifts in line with rules for members of Congress, and create an investigative board to review complaints against justices. Essentially, just holding these nine justices to the same standard as every single lower federal court judge in the country. It shouldn't be that hard. But without 10 Republicans on that board, the legislation cannot pass which means unless the Supreme Court decides to implement an ethics policy upon itself, they can and will keep getting away with it. Joining me now is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a member of the Judiciary Committee who was at that hearing today. And Senator, thank you so much for being here. I didn't even mention Ginny Ginny Thomas. You know, there is the ongoing scandal of what she was doing in yep. terms of insurrection and Harlan Crow funding her organizations. Um, but you're, 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 because Dianne Feinstein isn't there, this is an evenly divided panel. Correct. In your mind, what got done today and what can get done unless that configuration changes? What got done today was that a lot of light was brought onto the problem of a Supreme Court that um, refuses to abide by the code of conduct that applies mm-hmm. to all of the federal judges. Yep. That has no entity to investigate or check or do fact finding or reach conclusions. So they basically call their own fouls. Yep. And you can imagine how well that works. <laughs> yeah. And they get to make up the terms of the rules that they live under, which end up being very different from what regular judges with a real process uh, actually live on. Uh, some of the, the conduct that we've seen, including Clarence Thomas, um, not disclosing that Harlan Crow bought his mother's home and she still lives in it, doesn't pay any rent. Some of that seems like it also potentially could be criminal. Um, has there been any noise out of the Justice Department to say maybe they ought to start looking into it if there's nothing that the justices are willing to do to change their own behavior? There has not. What has happened is that the uh, disclosure questions regarding Clarence Thomas have been mm-hmm. sent by the Judicial Conference, which is the top administrative body of right. the courts, down to their so-called Financial Disclosure Committee, yeah. which then makes a recommendation as to whether to refer mm-hmm. that matter to the Justice Department if there is reasonable cause to believe that Justice Thomas's failure to disclose yeah. might have been willful. So it could get to the department through that willfulness referral, and we'll be watching to see what happens, because the last time that happens, yeah. it seems to have died in the Financial Disclosure Committee. There, there seems to just be a sense of stasis, right, that there's that they, they refuse. I mean, that letter was fairly arrogant, I will just say, uh, as a not as a layperson uh, from um, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, essentially saying, no, thanks. We don't need your help. We're good. We, we don't have any ethical issues. But their their approval ratings are in the in the in the basement. Right. They've dropped, what, 30 some odd points over yep. the last 20 years. People don't trust them. And no one believes that they're not just politicians. I mean, you actually let me play you to you. Uh, this is uh, you, Senator Whitehouse, questioning Chief, Ju- uh, Chief Justice Gorsuch. This is back in 2017. Take a listen. My question is, do you think there's a public interest and Senator- in disclosure of political funds in a democracy. That's, I don't think, a prejudgment. That's just a values proposition. And one of the considerations that uh, you ought to be able to answer without much hesitation. And Senator, um, what I'm prepared to say is I recognize that as a matter of First Amendment interests, the Supreme Court has validated the proposition 
that disclosure serves important functions in a democracy. At the same time, the Supreme Court's also acknowledged that those disclosure functions can sometimes themselves have unintended consequences. You know, there's a sense that, number one, you can't believe anything that they said in their hearings. I'm sorry to say, because they also said things about stare decisis that yeah. turned out to be well, lies. Remember right? what they said about Roe versus Wade. What they said about Roe versus Wade. It's a settled law. It's settled law. Um, but it also seems to me that at least the, the, the conservative majority, they act like little princes, like they can take money and trips and whatever they want. There's nothing the rest of us can do about it. And yet we're expected to abide by their rulings. Right. This is a, there's an asymmetry here. Yeah. In it's a one way street. It's a one way street. Let's talk about the money. You yeah. talk a lot about this. Um, the Leonard Leo money. Yeah. The new disclosures that it's not even clear that he didn't pick those justices that Donald Trump added to the court, the, the, the Trump three without the help of the Federalist Society, who we've all sort of come to think of the Federalist Society is, is serving up these justices and they're just getting on the bench. Now it's even murkier. Yeah, it's much murkier. I mean, it's a little hard to pick apart because Leonard Leo worked for the Federalist Society right. and still serves on their board of the Federalist Society. But what is clear is that the Federalist Society had no proceedings through which they adopted or approved any such list. Right. So if they didn't look at it, what's this Federalist Society list? Who did come up with it? I think that's an important question, because if it is a bunch of right-wing billionaires operating in a back room at the Federalist Society right. with Leonard Leo as their little functionary, then that's a really important consideration in evaluating these justices. It's hard for me to um, sort of wrap my mind around the idea that you have potentially billionaires who are essentially deciding who's on in the Supreme Court majority, you know, buying their way into a kind of power that we can't regulate, yeah. in which they get to decide things like burdens of taxation, which turn out to, weirdly enough, always turn out to be very low uh, on the very rich, or regulation, which somehow always goes the, the way in the way of the super rich. And all the rules seem to always go in one direction. Yeah. And it's, it's in, in terms of the statistically demonstrable yeah. which way the uh, decisions lean of this court. And when you think of that, you know, the $580 million you mentioned that they burned setting up this operation, and even the $1.6 billion that they gave Leonard Leo as his little reward for his slush fund, um, that's chump change Yeah, compared to how much they make well, off getting. of continuing to pollute for free, for instance, uh, by stopping climate regulations. And also, they seem to be very clearly getting political goals ticked off. Um, there has been a desire to overturn Roe versus Wade since, yeah. you know, the 19, late 1970s, you know, well, 73 when it passed. So shortly after that, they've gotten that check. Yeah. Um, they want deregulation check. Yeah. Everything they want that the far right sort of Christian minority wants, check, 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 check. So it seems to me that if they're just another political body, why shouldn't they be regulated the way you all are regulated? Yeah. Or like the judges are regulated. We're not asking much. We're asking that they be regulated in their ethics behavior the exact way that the rest of the federal bench is already regulated. Is the only way to fix this to expand the court? I think there are a lot of ways to fix this. And one of them is to pass a law that requires them to 
put in place a proper ethics infrastructure and bring a lot more transparency to the court. I have a bill that would put them under term limits. I was going to mention that. And that, I think, is an important way to regularize the process of replacing the judges. Yeah. So you don't get these political moments where Justice Kennedy is in touch with the uh, uh, Trump administration about resigning and trying to figure out how to get Kavanaugh on as his replacement and right. all that political murk yeah. really does not belong around a judicial appointment. Still then, set aside Leonard Leo and his billionaires. And then somehow we get a botched FBI investigation into Kavanaugh's past that somehow doesn't find anything. Yeah. It, it all is too cute by half and it's too convenient. Yep. And it all points in the same direction. Big money. Big money and big political influence. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, thank you for staying on this. Please come back. Thank you. And let us know uh, if anything changes in terms of them deciding to, I don't know, come and talk to you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Up next on the readout, uh, coming to grips with an America awash in guns, in which some people are apparently okay with us putting our lives on the line every time we go to the grocery store, the hair salon, or church, or a parade, or to school. The readout continues after this. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgart Tigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We are living through some dark times. There have been more mass murders in this country this year than days. Since 2015, more than 19,000 people have been wounded or killed in a mass shooting. Every single day, 120 Americans are killed with guns, and more than 200 are wounded by them. And that's why it is a quintessentially American habit to wake up practically every morning to the news of yet another tragic mass shooting. Like in Texas, where a man decided to murder five people, including a nine-year-old boy, after they asked him to keep his shooting down so that a baby could sleep. More than 250 law enforcement officers are looking for the gunman who is considered armed and dangerous. The manhunt currently has zero leads. The U.S. gun homicide rate is 26 times that of other high-income countries. 26 times. That gun violence exceptionalism is not a good thing. And what are we doing about it? Nothing. Or that's what Texas Senator John Cornyn told us the last time a mass murderer shot three babies and three adults in Tennessee. Republican priorities are so out of whack. The Northeast Independent School District in Texas has proposed canceling sex education. 
But the Texas House is proposing legislation that would ensure schools have bleeding control stations for use in the event of a traumatic injury involving blood loss. It would also make available to students from third grade lessons on how to use tourniquets approved for use in battlefield trauma care by the armed forces. Among other horrific things, you should probably not be forced to learn when you are eight. While firearms are the leading cause of death for American children and teens, Republicans will not engage in conversations about preventative measures. Last week, Fox News released a stunning new poll showing that massive majorities, massive, support criminal background checks on all gun buyers, improving enforcement of existing gun laws, raising the legal age to buy a gun to 21, and requiring mental health checks on gun buyers. Roughly 80% is not a small majority. Last week, however, Florida Senator Rick Scott, who was governor during the Parkland school shooting, was asked about the public's cry for help. And instead of acknowledging the massive support for sensitive gun measures, he doubled down on a very popular and very tired old gun myth. Take a listen. Fox poll on guns. That's not good news for Republicans. I mean, you're staking your claim to authority on, you know, don't do anything with gun laws. You've got enough already. Yeah. Well, first off, I think we ought to enforce all the gun laws we have. But let's also figure out how to make people safe. I put a bill out this week. Uh, It's the Guardian School Act. It's to do what I did in Florida. Put armed guards in all of our schools. Do you think that would be popular, Senator? I would teachers make kids safe. People with guns in schools, more people, more guns in schools. Absolutely. Fred Guttenberg, who lost his daughter Jamie in the 2018 Parkland school shooting, and gun policy consultant Thomas Gabor have teamed up to take on some of these overly peddled myths about guns and gun violence. They are co-authors of American Carnage, shattering the myths that fuel gun violence, which was published today. Thank you both for being here. I have been watching, I've watched all of your interviews that you've done, particularly on my friend Nicole Wallace's show. Um, And so I am, I am prepared to do this without busting into tears or rage um, because you all are so strong. But I do want to start with you, Fred, and thank you for being here and being always willing to come on and talk with us. That myth that you just heard Rick Scott say, that the solution to school shootings is more armed people in schools, armed guards in schools. Bust that myth for us. Well, uh, listen, and, and armed guards and armed security in schools in a lot of places is actually already a thing. He was trying to actually raid some federal dollars from elsewhere to pay for it. He politicized it. But, but here's the thing about schools, and, I, and, I, and I'm so tired of listening to people like Rick Scott, who for at least— 30 days of his life did the right thing immediately after Parkland, but wants you to forget it. There's about 115,000 schools in America. Since Columbine, there have been fewer than 400 school shootings. So the whole notion that the only way to deal with gun violence in America is by arming more people in schools, because he wants to arm teachers out also. Mm-hmm. The, It's bunk. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. And in fact, my daughter got killed in something that is extremely, extremely, extremely rare. If you add all the guns to schools by arming teachers, you're just going to make gun violence in schools more likely. It's there. Listen, let's never forget after Sandy Hook, people like Rick Scott, the NRA, their response immediately after Sandy Hook, Wayne LaPierre, 
headbutted for the first time. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Their response to Sandy Hook was a gun sales bonanza. It's what they want to do again. Right, because they want to sell guns to all of those school districts that you just mentioned. They're just thinking to themselves, ooh, how much more money could we make if we could make every single school have more armed guards? Uh, By the way, I will mention that Columbine in 1999, there was an armed guard in there. He was the first person to get shot. Same, uh, in my, same in my daughter's school. Parkland as well, yes. Absolutely. There were armed guards there as well. Let's go through some of these myths, because you all, do you go through them in your book, um, and I want to go through a couple of them. Um, so let's go to a second one. This one for you, Thomas, is gun owners frequently use firearms to fend off attackers. Um, <laughs> and we'll get to some of the others. Gun owners frequently use firearms to fend off attackers. True or not true, Thomas? Uh, not true. Uh, you know, this has been the gun lobbies and gun extremists narrative for the last 40 years. And they've managed to convince some Americans that they'll be safer with a gun, uh, carrying a gun or a gun in their home. In actual fact, if you look at a gun in the home, for example, for every time that a person uses a gun against an intruder, there are 22 Times or 22 cases where the gun is turned on somebody in that household. I'll just give you another statistic. Uh, the most reputable survey around is the National Crime Victimization Survey, which shows there are seven to 10 cases of aggressive or criminal uses of firearms for every defensive use. So it's very rare in these active shooter situations, whether in the school or out in public, it's very rare for an armed individual to intercede. And let's go to go. Can, okay, I, just say, go. can I just tell you why the, what he just laid out matters so much and why the yeah. lie matters so much in the t- past 20 years of what should have been my daughter's life since 2003. We've doubled the number of weapons in America from 200 million to over 400 million. Mm-hmm. And 20 years ago, AR-15 sales mm-hmm. were under 2% of all guns sold. They're now 25%. That is all you need to know to understand gun violence in America today. And it's all the lies and all the myths that get debunked in this book. Thomas just discussed one of them that are the reason. And Thomas, let me come back to you again. Let me put the list back up again. An armed society is a safer society. Um, You know, we're kind of not too far from the Waco anniversary. The reason that the Branch Davidian complex got raided is they were stockpiling M16s. Now, basically, every home is potentially a Waco compound with people stockpiling a very similar weapon, the AR-15, and you can't ring your neighbor's door. You can't. I would be afraid to go trick-or-treating. And my kids grew up not far from where you live in Parkland, Thomas. I would be afraid to be a door-to-door salesman. You've got people in there doom scrolling on the internet with dozens of AR-15s. How is that safer? Yeah, absolutely not. Because whether you look globally, when we compare different countries, say high-income countries, we find that consistently countries with higher levels of gun ownership, they're not safer. Quite the contrary, they have higher levels of homicide and gun deaths. Similarly, when we compare states, I did an analysis where I looked at the most uh, five states with the highest levels of gun death versus the five states with the lowest levels and the states with the 
highest, uh, higher level or the highest levels of gun deaths had four times the gun ownership rates. So we consistently find that as gun ownership goes up, so does gun-related mortality. But another thing, when you mentioned the door knocking and pulling in the wrong driveway and getting in the wrong car and that type of thing, some of that, those shootings, like the fellow in uh, Kansas City who shot through a door uh, against a young man who is just approaching the wrong door, you know, this has been enabled by the Stand Your Ground laws, which communicate a certain message to citizens. Number one, that it's okay. It's a legitimate thing to do to pull a gun on somebody if you have this concern about them yeah. before you investigate what's actually going on. And they also feel confident that they have immunity from prosecution. So it's a combination yeah. of what we're seeing in the country is increasing gun carrying. It's about fivefold what it was 20 years ago, coupled with these laws that communicate to people who do carry guns that it's quite okay and you're not going to face any consequences if you pull yeah. that gun against somebody. I'm going to give you the last word uh, on this, um, uh, Fred, because um, I don't understand how any lawmakers could talk to you, given what you've been through, and not be moved to say, you know what, okay, let's do something. You know, Rick Scott, as you said, did do the right thing. He did sign that law that temporarily mm -hmm. raised the age to buy an, uh, a rifle in Florida. That's now been wiped away by the current governor. Do lawmakers behind the scenes admit to you that they know what they're doing is wrong? They used to. I had many Republicans a few years ago who used to cry with me. But um, listen, they are beholden to a lobby. I'll just end with this. Pay attention to the motivation of who you listen to. There are people like us. Our motivation is to stop the next one. There is the motivation of the gun lobby and the legislators who are beholden to it. Their motivation is to sell the next gun. OK, that's the difference between them and us. And so it's the reason we wrote the book American Carnage. America isn't this way. It wasn't always this way. We are a history of a, our country is a history of one with gun safety laws yeah. on the books. Mm -hmm. The past 20 years have been terribly deadly for us. We've got to get back there and we start with voting in 2024. Yeah. Uh, and gun safety laws that the NRA back it, way back when used to support. Uh, yes, they did. They, Absolutely. Yep, they did. Uh, Fred Guttenberg, uh, Thomas Gabor, co-authors of American Carnage, uh, will definitely be getting a copy of that book. Thank, Thank you. you Joy. Thank you. Thank you very much. And still ahead, more Trump accusers testify at the Trump rape trial in New York. And I will talk with one of them next. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready... 
The Mel Robbins Podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody's got a perfect right not to believe me because it happened so long ago. But I'm not bothered by being called a liar. But what I find interesting is the stories of those other, what, 14, 15 women? They're all the same. And none of them have colluded with each other. So this is, this is an MO of this man. Jessica Leeds is more is one of more than two dozen women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct. In her case, she alleges that her encounter with Trump happened during a flight in the late 1970s when she was seated next to him. And all of a sudden, he began kissing her, grabbing her breasts and trying to put his hand up her skirt. It was a real shock when all of a sudden his hands were all over me. He started encroaching on my space. And I hesitate to use this expression, but I'm going to. And that is, he was like an octopus. It was like he had six arms. He was all over the place. Today, she took the stand in the civil trial of another one of Trump's accusers, E. Jean Carroll, who alleged that Trump raped her in a department store during the 1990s. Like Carroll, Leeds recounted in detail her encounter with Trump, how she too did not scream when the alleged attack happened. And like Carroll, kept quiet about the incident for decades. In Leeds's case, not coming out publicly until Trump's 2016 run for the White House. Trump has denied both allegations. However, you won't hear that from him on the stand. As Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, informed the judge this afternoon that Trump will not testify during the trial. And Jessica Leeds joins me now. Uh, Ms. Leeds, thank you so much for being here. Uh, not long after your accusation became public, uh, Donald Trump attacked you. Um, let me play that for you. When you looked at that horrible woman last night, you said, I don't think so. He went after me on the plane. Yeah, I'm going to go after. Believe me, she would not be my first choice that I can tell you. Man, you don't know. That would not be my first choice. That uh, seems to be his tenor uh, with all of his accusers. And there have been 26 of them um, who, as you said, their stories are all very similar and some very similar to yours. Is that the tone that Joe Tacopina? Well, well I, uh, let me ask you this. What tone did Joe Tacopina take with you when you were on the witness stand today? Because, you know, Donald, he is performing for his audience of one, which would be Trump. Yes. Well, basically, he went over the length of time between the, uh, when this happened and now, or in 2016 when I came out, and how could I possibly remember? And just questioning my veracity, basically. And uh, Donald Trump has done that, obviously, with yourself as well. Um, my understanding is that Joe Tacopina's tenor, including with E. Jean Carroll, is to ask, well, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you call for help? Why didn't you ask for security camera footage? Were you asked those kinds of questions as well? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, of course, the, the real answer is, again, back then, in the late 70s, early 80s, at that time— there was no place to go and complain. The stewardesses were not going to do anything. 
the, the airlines was not going to do anything. My company was not going to do anything. It was, there was nobody to tell. Yeah. The, the police would not take you seriously. That was, you were, you were, um, making up a story or whatever, but, but it just, it, no, it was no, nothing to report. Um, you actually did a conversation with E. Jean Carroll about the, the, both of your experiences, uh, negative experiences, horrific experiences with Donald Trump. Let me play a little bit of that about a later encounter in which he seemed to admit, in a way, what he did to you. The gala at Saks Fifth Avenue. This is a year or two after the flight, and it's a benefit for the Humane Society of New York and a few other charities. Jessica is the assistant to the president of the Humane Society and is handing out table assignments. And then Trump, with his wife, Ivana, came up. She was pregnant, very pregnant. And he looked at me when I handed him his table assignment. And I'm looking at him thinking, you're the from the airplane. I remember you. The future president of the United States remembers Jessica, too. And he looked at me and he said, I remember you. You're the from the airplane. Were you able to relate that to the jury that later on he disparages you again and specifically remembers you from the airplane? Because, you know, he's if he was going to claim that, how would you remember him? Well, how would he remember you? Probably he has selective memory of what, you know, maybe, maybe the tussle, um, insulted him. I don't know, but that's what he said to me in a room full of people. And it was like a bucket of cold water being poured over me. I would hope the jury would, would believe me. I would hope that the jury would understand, um, but who knows? It's still, it's still a man's world. I mean, you are one of 26 women um, who have made for, you know, claims at, at all sorts of ranges, including obviously E. Jean Carroll, who's made an, a rape allegation against Donald Trump. When you think about what's happened with, for instance, the Bill Cosby case, where it took 52 women before there was a sense that uh, there could be any justice for those women. And as you said, as a, it's a man's world, meaning that a celebrity, um, it takes a lot of accusers before people start to say, OK, maybe this seems like a pattern. But with Trump, he's admitted it. I mean, he did do the Access Hollywood tape, yes. which he said you can, he could do that to people. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And didn't wasn't there a story today about an airline uh, incident where a man was putting his hand up the stewardess's leg? I mean, I would hope it in this day and age she would report it. But it, but it's it's still who knows. Yeah. And do you did you get the sense, my final final question to you, as the as the jurors listened to you um, and as you answered those questions, it, it, emotionally, what did that do for you? Did it was it hard to do or do you think that it gave you sort of a some sort of sense of closure? Well, I really, really, really hope this is the last time I'm going to have to repeat this story because it's pretty yeah. awful. But I have no idea of how the, the jury is going to rule. And, and I can, as, as with hoping that in telling my story, people would, would examine Trump and not, and 
realize that he's not presidential material. Now it's just, you know, who the hell knows whether what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I think we are all rooting for you, uh, Jessica Leeds. I think I can speak for everyone who is watching right now. You're very brave to come forward and tell your story. And so just as a woman, I appreciate you. So thank you so much. Well, Joy, it's, I've watched your show and I, and I like, oh. I like your, uh, your way of doing business very much. And I wish you well. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica Leeds. Uh, you're great. Thank you. Um, and coming up, Hollywood writers go on strike demanding equitable pay and treatment. What it means for you, your favorite shows, and the writers on the picket lines. Stay right there. Monday was May Day known internationally as a day for workers to rally and fight for workers' rights. And on this May 1st, people around the world were doing just that, from France to Venezuela to South Korea and here in the U.S. People took to the streets. But in New York, there was a most striking juxtaposition as protests there ran straight into the annual display of opulence and wealth that is the $50,000-a-ticket Met Gala, bringing together A-listers from the world of fashion, film, music, sports, television, you name it. It's all very glamorous for them. While they were partying, the people who make the content behind some of the shows and films who give some of those celebs their shine took up their own fight to get fair pay for their work. More than 11,000 film and television writers are walking out as the Writers Guild of America went on its first strike in 15 years as writers seek fair pay in a world of streaming, a, de a development that's led to less work and less pay for them. The board of the Writers Guild voted unanimously for a strike after negotiations were unable to reach a deal with a trade group representing studios. In a statement, the WGA said the company's behavior has created a gig economy inside a union workforce and their immovable stance in this negotiation has betrayed a commitment to further devaluing the profession of writing. Now, I should note Comcast, which owns NBC Universal, is one of the entertainment companies represented by the trade group. And some editorial employees of NBC's news division are represented by the Writers Guild. The strike will bring some production to a standstill, including the late-night talk shows, which will stop production immediately and go into reruns. But some of the stars at last night's Met Gala who are about to be affected, Amanda Seyfried, late-night late host Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers, and Abbott Elementary's Quinta Brunson, have lent their support to the writers. Brunson noted that she is a member of the WGA and supports them getting what they need. We'll talk to one of those writers about what they need coming up after the break. I wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for my writers and I support them all the way. These people right here, these, hello, these, <laughs> these, these are our writers. These people, these are our writers and I'll stick myself in there because I'm WGA too and they're so important to our show. Without these people, this show would be called The Late Show with a guy rambling about the Lord of the Rings and boats for an hour. Two of the late-night hosts whose shows will be in repeats for the foreseeable future. Some of the first television and film production to go dark as a result of the Hollywood writer's strike announced last night. More than 11,000 writers are now on strike for the first time in 15 years. The last writer's strike in 2008 kept late-night dark for two months. Joining me now is Michael Harriet, a writer on The Amber Ruffin Show and host of The Griot Daily, and Brian Steinberg, senior television editor for Variety. Thank you both for being here. Michael, I will go to you first. 
uh, as a writer. Um, what do you make of the decision to strike? And uh, do, were you a supporter of the decision? And how long do you think it'll go on? Uh, so I think I am a supporter of the decision. Uh, and I think, you know, most, well, the, the, there was a 99% support rate for this strike because the majority of television and movies consumed today are consumed by on platforms that really don't pay writers. You're talking about streaming services. Um, and the problem is that these contracts, the contract that we were currently under was kind of conceived before streaming exploded. So there are a number of issues um, that are not just pertinent today, but uh, important to the future, right? You're talking about that TV shows being right, written with AI bots, right? And yeah. those AI bots don't like pull words out of the sky. What they do is crowdsource the material of writers like me and a million other WGA writers to create content. And so they're Fewer, fewer episodes of TV shows. Um, there are services that don't pay writers. They're trying to reduce the pay of writers. Meanwhile, the companies are getting more revenue. Advertising rates go up. And the people who create the content for those streaming services, for the platforms like uh, this company, they don't partake in that revenue increase. And that's not fair. No, absolutely. And and I can tell you, even this company, everybody's touting streaming, right? Ryan, like this is the thing, right? That companies are saying this is the future. And yet this is the place where writers actually make the least money, you know, and talk about this a little bit because a series on a Netflix and a series on like say a broadcast network, very different lengths and very different amounts of work, right? That is true. I think you're finding on your Netflix and your Amazon, maybe eight, 10, 12 episodes, uh, the traditional broadcast cycle of more than 20. So if you're a writer who's predominantly working in streaming, you need to hop from show to show to keep the episodes going to make, make the kind of money you're used to making. And so what is the sort of uh, industry explanation for why they wouldn't want to compensate people? Um, because some of the demands were, you know, minimum pay increases. Um, they want to standardize the residuals, regardless of whether it's theatrical or streaming, viewership-based residuals, minimum six writers per show based on episodes, minimum 10 weeks of employment and regulating the use of artificial intelligence and increasing contributions to the pension and health plan. Why not just say yes, uh, Brian? Why wouldn't the industry say that's a great idea? Let's do it. We need our writers. I think the industry is in the middle of operating on very difficult terrain. Comcast, Disney, Paramount, they're not sure where they're going. They, they see their business changing very quickly. They're not making profits all the business they need to invest in under a lot of, a lot of uh, Wall Street scrutiny. And I think they're just as lost, perhaps, as the writers are who are finding, trying to find their way in a new world. Not to excuse not paying people what they should be worth, but I think they don't actually where their money's coming from. You know what? The thing is, Michael... They aren't skimping on their CEO salaries, though. So, right? So, they're, if they're not, if they're worried about where they're going, they're right. certainly not worried enough to stop paying their CEOs millions and millions and millions of dollars. Right, um, and, and that's the problem, right? They're still making money off of the because what good is a CEO without content or a company, right? And the problem is, right? One of the other problems is the streaming services. You know what residuals come from is when you re-air a show, you get to advertise again. And so you share the profit from those advertising. Well, what the streaming services say is, well, we don't get advertising money. So we shouldn't have to pay those residual rates 
Although, like, the reason Netflix is successful is not because it has, like, 10 hit shows. It beca- it's because it has a bunch of hit shows that you can go on and choose which one you want. And those that content is produced and created by writers. So even if you don't, if, if you don't watch it or if it's not a hit show, the fact that you have a large library means that the writers should partake in the profits that you make. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, Brian, what is the thinking on how long this might go on and whether this is going to bleed over to other unions as well? Because if the writers aren't working, I I can't imagine these studios are going to be eager to be paying crews and paying other folks. This is going to start to be a lot of people. How long are they willing to hold out and harm their own industry by just not agreeing to pay people what they're due? I mean, the roadmap would suggest 100 days was the last strike. Uh, and I think if this gets into the fall, that's when I think people are starting to get, getting very nervous. When, when new TV seasons can't start, when there are there's nothing to put on TV, as you know, as new episodes are getting burned off, things are already filmed or maybe in the can. So the longer this goes on, the less eager either side is going to be to, to keep this going. Right. And I mean, but but Michael, I I would assume the writers, the solidarity is pretty strong because you're seeing other unions say, you know what, we're standing with with y'all. I mean, it doesn't seem like they're going to break the writer's side. Right. Like, I think the solidarity is strong. And, and again, this is not about what we're going to make by the fall or by this year. It's, it's the future contract that we're going to be stuck with for the foreseeable future. And so the, if, it, if it lasts long, um, the union has made provisions for that. But let's hope it ends quickly. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that uh, our writer producers here are invaluable. We could not make this show without them. I stand firmly uh, with the writers and firmly with our writers and producers here as well, because no content, no money for anybody, no shows. Uh, Michael Harriet, Brian Steinberg. Thank you both. That is tonight's readout. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.